0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Danny Masters is a Bitcoin pioneer and the executive chairman of CoinShares. In this conversation, we talk about what's happened over the last two years, how much of it was due to the macro environment, what Danny is thinking about over the next 18 to 24 months, how important the Federal Reserve is to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And then we go deep on CoinShares, a publicly traded asset management firm focused on the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency industry. We talk about their principal investing, their asset management products, and much, much more. Danny, at the very end, saves a surprise for everyone. He quite literally takes off his shirt and shows a brand new thing that he's been waiting to reveal publicly i always enjoy talking to danny and i learn something new every time this conversation was no different here is my conversation with danny masters Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is brought to you by Auradine. They are a brand new startup led by a number of Silicon Valley legends who just raised $81 million to build the future of Internet infrastructure. You're probably wondering what that means. Let me explain. There are numerous new disruptive technologies that are being adopted simultaneously from blockchain to artificial intelligence to zero knowledge technologies. In order to ensure that these technologies thrive in this new world, we need new infrastructure. And that is where Aradyne comes in. They just launched their first product line called Terraflux, which is a Bitcoin miner powered by the world's first 4 nanometer silicon chip technology. These air-cooled, single-phase, and dual-phase immersion cooling miners have unrivaled speed and efficiency, they have superior uptime, and they leverage a brand new innovation called Energy Tune that allows miners to dynamically adjust the energy consumption and Bitcoin hash rate based on demand response needs of the electrical grids. Aradine is an ambitious company working on hard problems. I'm really impressed with them. And if you want to check out more, you can go to Auradine.com. That's A-U-R-A-D-I-N-E.com. Go check them out at Auradine.com today. This episode is brought to you by Cal.com. What do I have in common with Chad Hurley from YouTube, Toby from Shopify, and Alexis from 776 and the co-founder of Reddit? We all use Cal.com instead of Calendly, and we are all early investors as well. Cal.com is leading the charge of scheduling platforms in the open source sphere, offering you the chance to harness the efficiency previously reserved for elite corporations and tech gurus. If you like to have your calendar organized and be able to have an efficient exchange when scheduling, but you love all of the benefits of open source technology, then Cal.com's for you. They are transforming sophisticated calendar management into an accessible tool for all via a user-friendly interface. You can customize it, and you can make your calendar work for you. Use code POMP for $500 off when you set up your team with Cal.com today. Again, go to Cal.com, C-A-L.com, and use code POMP to get $500 off when you sign up. Cal.com, an open source tool that allows you to take back control of your calendar, be efficient when scheduling, and make sure that no one can steal your time all right guys bang bang I've got Danny here with me uh Danny last time we talked was about two years ago a lot's happened since then uh prices went up a lot then they went down a lot seem to be recovering how do you evaluate maybe from the top of the 2021 bull market to today what's happened and more importantly why it's happened
1: well great to see you again Paul and um yeah it's been uh two years since we last spoke and uh, it seems like an awfully long time uh, but a lot has happened so I guess we've probably been both occupied With the, uh, with the developments in the marketplace. Um, like me, you've been through multiple crypto cycles. Uh, Believe it or not, this is my uh, 11th year in the crypto industry. Um, and you know, the industry has changed, you know, in a dramatic way over that period of time. Um, as I first recall, it was populated almost exclusively by computer scientists and startups called, you know, blockchain.com and Coinbase. Uh, And we've come a long, long way since then. You know, I I think at the the CoinShares level, you know, our our approach, and and we can get into the company, I think, a little bit later, but our approach was to build something very solid, very robust, something which would be fit for a public market, you know, at the top uh, end of the uh, listing spectrum. And accordingly, you know, we built our business quite slowly um, and carefully, and we have no choice. But... Some of our peers and competitors built their businesses extremely rapidly. And as you will well know, and our audience will well know, we saw a dramatic rise and fall uh, for companies like BitMEX, um, for companies like um, Celsius, Three Arrows. You know, the list is very, very, very long. And those companies were both, you know, very fortunate to grow as rapidly as as they did. Um, But as we were going through that period of uh, extremely rapid growth of those companies, my impression certainly was they were running a little bit too fast. And I don't think the governance was there. I don't think the risk management was there. Uh, I heard some extraordinary stories about, you know, people extending credit that no one in their right mind would extend. All looks great in a bull market. But then, you know, you have the inevitable unwinding. And um, I actually posted something on my LinkedIn uh, at the bottom of the market, pretty much as soon as SPF was was arrested. And that was, you know, the low in psychology. It was everybody was not just force liquidated that was liquidated. Then there was a sort of a delayed reaction where it wasn't you going bust. It was your counterparty going bust that made you go bust. And the sentiment just became maximum negative. And, you know, you, that was the low of the move, 16K or something like that basis Bitcoin. I have seen this multiple times, you know, in my career on Wall Street where uh, there's been a cycle and it happened in oil. It happened in natural gas. It happened in copper. Um, and the similarities were incredible. There was always, you know, the big market leading company It would have been Kanematsu in copper. It would have been metal gazelle shaft in energy. It would have been Enron in natural gas. It would have been Brian Hunter in Amaranth in the natural gas hedge fund business. Very big dominant company, um, you know, read FTX for that, and maybe a couple of others. There was a poster child spokesman for that company, all the names that we we now know in, in, in infamy. And, and when those people, you know, ran out of road and the market began to sense they were vulnerable and people all exited the ship uh, and they sank in every case and were arrested in many cases and jailed in some cases, that always represented the cycle low. And in each of those examples I just quoted, yeah, it represented the multi-year cycle low of the asset class. So, you know, going back to, you know, the SPF uh, collapse, uh, we were talking 16K Bitcoin. That was the wrong price. Uh, Given everything, it was the wrong price. It it was a victory lap for the haters. There was forced liquidation left, right, and centre. There was knock-on effects from third-party exposures that sunk other people, and um, it was the wrong price. So we had something of a recovery, call it to the you know low twenties, mid twenties, and then some other interesting stuff happened where there were a series of enforcement actions, you know, largely by the SEC, but not limited to the SEC, and I think. Those in, in the initial phases had very negative impacts on price. So you'd see the latest lawsuit and the market would be down you know a thousand two thousand dollars on the back of it. And as a market watcher myself, and again, having been through these cycles in other commodities, what you're really looking for is the time when those pieces of news no longer move the market, and the market then sort of becomes immune uh, and impervious to that kind of news. And you need to see that because, in any investment, you really need to know, you know, where the bottom is. You know, it might be a silty bottom, but somewhere roughly where the bottom is, and when that kind of news can be absorbed without a market impact, uh, you know that there's a little bit of a foundation there. So, you know, now we're in the mid twenties, and you know, we we don't really have much of a catalyst. I think it was very instructive to look at a lot of private company stocks, not just ours, but many, many others as interest rates, you know, got very high uh, to the five, six, seven percent, depending on which country you're talking about, the valuations and the multiples of all these private companies collapsed and, and, you know, in many cases haven't significantly recovered. And I think, you know, Bitcoin is one of those kind of um, risk on assets, probably arguably the most risk on asset. And therefore, um, while we were sitting at 25, you know, having been too low at 19, we're sort of battling this headwind of, of really high interest rates and, and lack of speculative capital and liquidity, you know, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, not just in the macro environment, but in the crypto environment as well. Um, and that was true of counterparties going out of business. It was true of credit lines that people were offering and could receive uh, and so on. And then all of a sudden, you know, following July, you know, July was kind of, you know, uh, crept up to near 30. Following that, you know, two things start to happen happened, you started to see a little bit of a chink initially in the energy price, which took some of the heat out of inflation, because the, you know, Russia, Ukraine spike started to kind of wear off. Then you sort of saw a little bit of backing up in inflation as well. And all of a sudden, we're not sitting here thinking rates are going to God knows what number, um, with thinking actually, the worst might be over. That's good for another little bump. You still don't really have a catalyst at that point, okay? You're just trying to try to avoid the bullets, as it were. And um, the catalyst was really, I think, um, you know, let's call it broadly institutional interest in crypto, something that we've been after for a long time. You know, you had a confluence of a number of events. We've got some forward process, forward progress in in regulation in Europe through the market legislation makes some sense. You know, Switzerland's still a very solid jurisdiction. UK is a little bit sort of uh, negative generally with crypto, but trying to make steps to go forward. In fact, if you listen to the politicians, it sounds a lot better than it actually is when you talk to the regulator, but moving in the right direction. And so that started to look a little bit better. Rates start to look a little bit softer. And then we have some tangible input, you know, the BlackRock ETF. And I think that was, you know, that was the catalyst to, to really move this. And what it's saying is, okay, we've kind of exited all the bad actors. Uh, we've put at least the seeds of a regulatory framework in Europe in place and outside of America. Um, and that's a base on which you can build. And I think that is a legitimate catalyst. I think the impact of that kind of thing, um, people need to understand that where BlackRock has a product, BlackRock has three trillion of assets that they can deploy, their clients can Make a ten basis point allocation for Bitcoin. That's a huge number, and those clients probably wouldn't buy something outside of that environment because you know they deal with the biggest and the best clients in the world. So that you know that I think is where we are, and that that I think now continues because you know another thing I've learned about markets over a long period of time is when there is an event horizon, and the event horizon in this case is the approval of such an ETF. The market tends to move into that vacuum while it's happening. That's why I'm not really in a hurry for a judgment. (laughs) I kind of like to see this all all next year would be just fine because I think the anticipation of that uh, is a positive. And and also, you know, we're seeing for the first time, I would say, um, you know, institutional interest to be involved in the marketplace from really quality companies who may want us to white label products, may want to buy our products. For the first time, you know, we're seeing, and it almost seems to me like, you know, these institutions are going, right, we had a big backup in price. We had a big clean out of, of bad actors. We've got some regulatory framework, which we can kind of hang our hat on. We've clearly got the client demand. Larry Fink will tell you that directly. And so we're going to try and get involved. And um, hey, this is this is what you know. You and I have been sitting around waiting for for many years, and uh, I, I truly believe that is happening as we speak.
0: How impactful? If we kind of look forward, maybe the next two to three, five years, how impactful? can this be? And, and I'll give you kind of uh, a couple of things I've been thinking about. I don't yet have kind of a strong opinion about, right? One is if somebody wanted Bitcoin badly enough, they probably went and figured out a way to get it is one argument. Yeah. Uh, a second one is even if the ETFs gathered 50 billion in assets, it's an yeah. $850, 900000000000 billion asset. And so how much could you really, you know, it's not like it's going to triple overnight. Another argument is no, this is the signal that everyone gets in, right? Every asset manager, nation states, kind of it, it is, this time is different and, and there's uh, the breakout of this kind of four year cycle and, and kind of having process. W- where do you sit and, and how are you thinking about this right now?
1: Well, I, I was around for the creation of the gold ETF in the beginning and, and to date myself. Um, and do you know what the narrative was at the time? It was, okay, you know, this capital is in theory gonna come into this space But the day-to-day trading volumes of gold are actually not large enough to sustain that kind of capital inflow. You know what happened? The daily trading volumes of gold went through the roof. And, and, you know, when we at CoinShares, uh, and I'm not sure how publicly available this research is, you might have to call James Butterfield, our head of research, and ask him nicely uh, if any viewers are interested. It could be on our website. I'm not absolutely sure. We we did a, you know, we, we lead the industry in terms of providing data on institutional inflows into crypto. And so we have some very granular data on that. And we, we did a research on our own and we said, OK, we think we know the price elastic response to inflows to the price of Bitcoin. We can correlate that back over time. Um, half our marketing and research team, by the way, came from the gold business, funny enough, because we hired them from uh, Wisdom Tree, uh, actually, to come to the crypto industry. And so they're very familiar with that whole um, that whole uh, development back in, in the gold ETF beginnings. And so you know we modelled what we reasonably thought the inflows would be. So you multiply the inflows by the price elastic response, and you end up with a price. And that price, I think, came out to between one hundred and fifteen and one hundred forty thousand dollars. Now, I have never in my entire crypto career been the guy saying the moon and five hundred K and you know all that kind of rubbish. But this is just math, right? This is just like a reasonable assumption for these kind of inflows moves it that way. Now, what's the causality there? You can't just say that the creation of a gold ETF and the inflow of institutional clients who wouldn't have otherwise invested in gold was the only factor because once they start doing it, the retail starts doing it as well. So so I do think that um, it will be, you know, maybe the type of people you mentioned in your first comment, those who've figured out how to do it first, it's probably where we are right now. Second, you know, you get the actual announcement. There's maybe a little profit taking, usually the rumor, buy the rumor, sell the fact thing is a, is a, is a good strategy to trade. Uh, and after that, you're sitting there waiting for inflows to come into the, into, into the actual ETF. And, and I think that will be a real driver Um, Happened also in the silver ETF, which came after the gold ETF and Barclays, who used to own the silver ETF before they had the problems in 2008 and had to sell it to BlackRock, um, used to publish a very useful spreadsheet showing you how much silver had been accumulated into the ETF week by week by week. And after six months of this, you could draw a line through it and kind of go, there's not enough silver. And silver reacted, you know, accordingly. So so, yeah, I think it's real, and I think it starts with the guys that can already do it. It's followed by the institutions, and then it's followed by the retail guys who probably got a little bit burnt, you know, in a couple of the dips, um, particularly in 21. Um, but it's it's a green light across the board, I think.
0: Now, when we look at um, what is – Happening now. There's some people who are front running Federal Reserve, potentially moving back towards loose monetary policy, cutting rates. You know, the, the whole narrative that I think people are grabbing onto. How important is the Federal Reserve for the movement of Bitcoin's price? And um, on one hand, we see these like you know Bitcoin over global M2 supply. On the other hand, we see the Fed still committed to destroying investor demand, and Bitcoin's up you know 150 uh, percent on the year. And it seems like you know could care less what Jerome Powell says in his press conferences.
1: I think it makes a huge impact. Um, you know, it's just looser credit. You know, Bitcoin is a very responsive act uh, uh, asset class um, to looser credit. Um, I'm surprised it didn't do a little bit better under the inflationary kind of regime. Um, but, you know, for all those who said, oh, it's disappointing that Bitcoin didn't rally more, you know, during the inflationary cycle, because Bitcoin had been touted as an inflationary asset. Well, we didn't really know that because because um we'd never seen an inflation recycle before in the history of Bitcoin. it was too uh too young. so it, I think you know what we've learned, and we do keep learning as time goes by about how bitcoin responds um to me it is it is it is a, a risk on asset you know backed by some technology tailwind that that slowly kind of permeates it out amongst you know many, many more users as you can see from. You know, wallet adoption and, and the amount of Bitcoin in wallets, it just diffuses out into space continually over time. Um, so, yeah, I do think that the, look, we're clearly on the shallow you know, beginnings of a, a down cycle in rates. Um, and, you know, the, the Fed has not done a great job of reducing the size of the balance sheet to date, neither of any other central banks. Um, not quite sure how good they're ever going to be at doing that. And, you know, as cycles happen, maybe we'll do some more money printing at some point in time. So so I think there's, you know, a modest tailwind, all other things being equal. Um, And as, you know, as we see failure to reduce the balance sheets and and arguably, in some extraneous circumstance, more money printing, it seems to be unavoidable over time, politically unavoidable. Um, Then, then, you know, we start, we, we ratchet higher still. So, you know, look. This is not a crazy bull market like it's going to be up $10,000 in a day as it has been you know, from time to time in the past. I think it's a really broad base or potentially broad base and very solid rally that could go on for some time.
0: Now, coin shares, I think, is very interesting business because you basically have exposure to different parts of the market. Right. You know, I've yeah. seen reports that say, hey, look at their principal investing. They're fantastic investors. There's others that say, wow, this asset management business uh, is going to do really well as prices go up. Um, there's even been uh, some coverage, I think, from some of the research analysts that are like "CoinShares shares benefits when ETH goes to uh, proof of stake. Right. There's just kind of all kinds of different things being written or, or covered about the business. How do you think about coin shares? And like when, when you think of, OK, this is a business we have today. How do you describe it to people?
1: yeah um well two ways to describe it really it's it's one what do we do from a qualitative perspective and two you know how do our earnings actually you know respond to different market conditions um so if i had to describe it in a few words it's an asset management business um we currently have around four billion and we have it in a wide array of products now Um, we have our legacy xbt provider products in sweden which incredibly popular from the day they listed. Um, we have CoinShares Digital Securities, which is a a platform um, of a different kind. It's a little bit more institutionally focused, a little bit more institutionally structured, a little bit cheaper uh, fee-wise, multiple products there, and multiple listings on different exchanges for those multiple products. We have a couple of um, private trading funds uh, run by uh, a chap that works for us called Lewis Fellas. Um, that do relatively sophisticated, you know, Bitcoin and ETH strategies for you know high net worth and private and institutional investors. We have an equities fund, the block index that we joint ventured with Invesco. We have CoinShares Fund 2, which is now four years old and is a 10-year duration private equity um, fund uh, closed that run by Melton Demeris. Um, so you know, a, a pretty wide spectrum of investment product. And you know, you've seen the news recently that we are involved with Valkyrie and we're hoping to also be a player in the in the US ETF market now. So quite a wide, a wide different array. And it's it's been really interesting to see how loyal certain customers are to certain geographies and certain structures. They know this ticker. I and mean, I'm like, well, that ticker's cheaper and it's the same exposure, but they don't really move. And um, and our, our capital base is very, very sticky. And I'll tell you an interesting fact, which is, of, our, of the assets that we currently have, I think we have given back way more than the invested capital that we ever received. In other words, everybody in our network, on mass, you know, in sum, is trading with house money. And I've never seen that before <laughs> in an investment product. Um, and the truth you know one of, the, one of the sort of unspoken truths about the uh, asset management business in crypto is you never really raise that much money. You kind of got to have money from three years ago that's multiplied significantly. And that's actually by far the best source of fresh AUM. I mean, the last month or two, I think our AUM has gone up by like $600 million. And that's purely, I mean, there might be 10, 20, 50, 100 million, here or there coming in or out, but basically it's because the asset class is going up. So that's where we are actually synthetically quite long Bitcoin, because the more Bitcoin goes up, the more IOM goes up, the more our fees go up, very simple. And um, that's a good exposure to have. So that's that. The second part of the business, which has been really evolving over time, just changed changed so many times actually over the years is CoinShares Capital Markets, which is our market making business, which was started back in 2015, probably 2014, Because no one else would make markets in our securities because no one had the securities leg and the crypto leg simultaneously. Yeah. Crypto guys and securities guys, but nobody did both. So we started that business. Um, it's been through a number of cycles, you know, broadly speaking, we make markets in our own products. Um, and as, as conditions permit, you know, we'll make markets for third parties. Um, and we do an amount of arbitrage trading, whether it's, you know, buy on this exchange, sell on another one a derivative that's underpriced versus another derivative that's overpriced and you know no outright exposure or stuff like that but you know these days we're probably doing between one and two billion a month in the peak we're probably doing five billion a month in that business Um, it is represented over time anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of our overall revenue so in some cases almost matches the fee business that we have and um and what's happened you know despite the fact that volumes have gone down the competitive landscape has shrunk by at least 50 percent and so margins have gotten higher and i don't think we're quite where we were but it's not as bad as it sounds when you talk about a 50 percent drop in volume um it's uh you know the, the 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 money that can be made is is actually um more than you know it's, it's more than that so and that that business it sounds simple but, you know, you have to set up all kinds of banking lines and exchange facilities and, and really be able to actually operate it, you know, manage the risk, measure the risk and, uh, and have the sort of liquidity and the partners around that you need to, to make that work. So, you know, that's, that's quite a mature business at this point. It's, it's run quite professionally and, and it's a big contributor. Um, the third part is, as you say, you know, we have, Investments in probably forty companies. If you if you look at all of the pockets we have, um, some of those are actually side pockets, some ex investors, some pre IPO investors that pretty much mirror the current cap table. Um, we have a fund with that group. We have a coinvest fund too. Um, we have um, you know some stuff on the balance, some significant stuff on the balance sheet as well. And um, and yeah, you know those are generally you know we've had a few losses like everybody else, uh, a few write offs like everybody else. But, you know, dotted around there are some real winners. A great example was Block Demon. Uh, we had a position in Block Demon, you know, one of 25 positions in CoinShares Fund Two, And we managed to return all of the invested capital to the investors by selling a piece of that position um, when, you know, in 2021, which is obviously a wise thing to do in retrospect. So there's been some uh, good winners there. And, you know, more importantly than that, that's nice, but more importantly, we've done lots of business with our significant private equity position. So, you know, we do a lot of business with Kamenu, our custodian that we launched with Nomura and Ledger. We do a tremendous amount of business with Flowbank, in which we're a big, you know, client, um, a, big, a big shareholder. And um, we've done a lot of business with 3iQ uh, in Canada, you know, issuing uh, ETFs. Uh, with Kingdom Trust, um, uh, who have recently gone through a buyout uh, process. Which was a good deal for us so and in all of those cases you know we we're either clients of theirs or created and co-marketed products with them or they became clients of ours and um and and that's been um that's been you know a good activity not nearly as impactful as the training and the investment management business um but but we shall you know we're still in the game you know with a lot of those and see, see we'll see how they go the final point i'll make and this is a new one so i would say what i just said Six months ago, the new one is is really in two pieces. There's money on the edge of crypto that is either crypto money. So, just to throw out a couple of names, you know, the Binance's, the Tethers, the you know, the, 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 the even DCGs, arguably of the world, and you know, these guys may, in some cases, not be deemed experienced enough to operate a regulated crypto business. Um that's kind of a requirement in many, many cases now. And you know if you don't have the track record and you don't have the infrastructure or you've m- made missteps in the past, it's very hard to obtain those kind of licenses. We have a lot of licenses and um and you know they've been hard, hard for three, four years to get some of them and um and so we find ourselves in a position where we can actually form a buffer between capital and regulated businesses where those that capital cannot directly access and we'll find ways you know to make that work you know within the appropriate regulatory framework the second thing uh, that's going on is you know there is there is a a cohort of asset managers who can't make it pay because Believe it or not, you know, and I've seen some examples of this, you know, you can have a few hundred million dollars in a crypto asset management business and still not be able to make it pay because of, you know, relatively low fees and relatively high regulatory costs and staffing costs. And so there's an opportunity for us. And, you know, I think the Valkyrie deal is probably in that in that flavor where, you know, we can bring our scale um, and we can operate some of these businesses very little incrementally. And so there was a roll-up trade going on where um, you know, the bigger managers can can take out the smaller managers and that can be on an outright purchase or on a buyout or on a JV basis. Um, so, and that's, that's a new activity. You know, and that, that to me is us finally getting paid for the gold-plated infrastructure that we spent so long and spent so much money on building.
0: Now, on this part of, um, I'm gonna call it, there's like the systematic stuff. Right. Where uh, you either are passive in the market or you're not making decisions yourselves Um, Mm -hmm. versus what I'll call maybe more of like the past uh, in terms of understanding macro, understanding markets, uh, making private investments. How much of um, crypto is different? Maybe then let's say in the traditional financial system where, uh, you know, people see everyone from uh, the Citadels all the way to the 0.72s to, you know, even Dalio and um, um, uh, Bridgewater. Like a lot of these folks, I think, have really driven home this idea that like the machines are making the decisions. We don't mm-hmm. seem to see that much of it. Obviously, market making maybe is a little bit different than uh, some of the the private investments, and maybe there's like the two extremes. But how do you think about like human intervention versus machine software, AI, and like this rise of the machines sure. are smarter than the humans?
1: Something something has been a you know a growing trend throughout my entire career. Um, you know when I started it was hundred percent humans and um, that is definitely not the case anymore. In the company that predated CoinShares, um, the commodity fund um, that uh, me and a couple of my partners ran, we actually ran both strategies. We had a purely quant strategy and we had a purely discretionary strategy. And I ran the discretionary strategy and one of my partners ran the quant strategy. And I have to say, I think they were very complementary. But the style could not be more different. Um, It's an entirely different activity. Um, so you know, I don't think there's an even even in the companies you just mentioned, the D shores, the Citadel's, the uh, all these you know the the the, the millenniums of the world. Um, you will find actually if you go below the surface that both of those styles still exist. The difference, and when it gets a little bit, let's say, uh, um, uh, what's the word, a uh, camouflaged is. In execution, you almost need an algorithm these days. Like in my day, you pick up the phone and say, "You know, buy a thousand lots of crude oil," and then someone would scream onto the floor that you buy a thousand lots of crude oil. Nobody does that anymore. So, and the reason you need algos is that there are so many other algos that as soon as you put in an offer, someone's going to be ahead of your offer, be ahead of your offer, and they're going to they're going to gain you. So, so you shouldn't really be confused that the. That in a way you might have a Stan Druckenmiller sitting there going, you know, I want to buy, you know, hundred million or ten years, but he's not going to pick up the phone to the Chicago Merck and, and say those words. He's going to give that to Goldman or whomsoever, and they're going to run a smart algo that's going to do that. And that it's just a cat and mouse game. You know, there's no, I don't think there's any intellectual input into that. We run a ton of algos in CoinShares. To do exactly that, you know, if we get lifted on a market making offer somehow, there'll be some algo running on how you're going to get that, you know, that position back again. Um, Those algos are written by humans, by the way, not an AI, at least not yet. So, So in a way, you know, you're just really codifying what you would do if you were sitting there and you could do it that fast, which you can't um but a lot of the you know our quants will sit around and they will write those algos but the logic behind those algos you know would be no different to what a good discretionary trader would be doing and executing an order so it's really what's your strategy is is it a discretionary strategy there's a place for that is it a quant strategy there's a place for that but pretty much either way you're executing with an algo.
0: What are you most excited about thematically in crypto? So not like products, not CoinShare, you know, in terms of business lines, but are there certain themes or areas of the market that you feel like uh, are either under, you know, um, scrutinized at the moment and and will be bigger than people think, or maybe even areas that everyone's talking about that you're less excited about and think could be overhyped?
1: I think the most interesting observation point I never really understood how there was room for the proliferation of different crypto assets that occurred, you know. For quite some time, uh, I was active in crypto when there was only Bitcoin, and then I think there might've been uh, Litecoin, and then I think there might've been Ethereum, but it seemed like a long time to get to like three cryptos. And, and we somehow went from three to 20,000 in a very short period of time. And and what what I realized finally was Crypto is, is, you know, very, very, very low hurdle of entry, very high hurdle of success. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been frustrating that, you know, I've been involved with the Tezos Foundation for some time now. Tezos is a great blockchain. a very secure, very sophisticated blockchain. It's one of, you know, in my view, probably the top five in terms of its its functionality. Um But it is very, very tough to unseat Bitcoin as a store of value and Ethereum as a a utility at this point. And there are some other promising, you know, candidates for sure. But it just seems that, you know, the longer time goes on, the more the infrastructure built around the legacy, old legacy coins um, becomes more of a factor for their longer term survival. And that makes sense in a way, because as we know, improvement protocols are there so that the community can improve the, the, the network on which they're working. And if they're getting an idea for the near protocol or the avalanche protocol, um, why not, you know, if it's a good one, bake it into, you know, into Ethereum. So what I think, what I think I'm learning here is that I wasn't sure how this would all unwind, but it does seem to me that you know, there will be some sort of Darwinian extinction of a large number of cryptos. And unfortunately, a lot of those cryptos are the ones that, you know, the, the uninformed retail investors might have piled into in 2020 and 2021. Um, you know, some of them shocking, you know, shocking in terms of performance in 95% declines and stuff like that. And I think a lot of those things are walking dead. You know, I think we may be now reverting to, you know, a, a very limited number of meaningful crypto networks. And you know, I think we just need to sort of circle in around those and kind of forget about a lot of this other stuff. And that, you know, that kind of evolution doesn't happen in normal financial markets. In normal financial markets, things are built behind a wall to last, very robustly, very inertly, very featureless. And they'll be there for 20 years. Like my HSBC bank account is pretty much the same as it was 20 years ago. Um, that's not the way crypto works. And so we had to find another creation-extinction mechanism, and I think that's what we've been seeing. So this may sound boring, but I'm most excited about Bitcoin and Ethereum for those reasons. I,
0: I think that a uh, majority of the market probably feels exactly the same way. Um, another question I have is, you've been doing this for 10, 11 years now. Uh, when you first did it, you've told me, a lot of your peers were kind of looked at you like, hey, Danny, you, you okay? <laughs> what, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, a decade later, uh, have they capitulated? What, what are some of your peers doing? What are they saying behind closed doors? I think what
1: my, and I'm talking about my peers outside, of, you know, my financial market peers, okay, not not my, you know, not my inside crypto uh, kind of peers, but but the, yeah, they're, they're a cycle or two behind me. You know, they'll get there when, you know, you come to realize that, you know, there's a particular kind of heartbeat to crypto um, that is more volatile than other asset classes. And, you know, just because you lost 40% on your last purchase uh, and might have been ill disciplined in how to deal with that potentially, um, you will learn. And, and you know, I felt like, you know, post 2021, there a lot of my kind of outside crypto network um, kind of gave up on it. It's was like, oh, you know, that's done. You know, that's over. And now, all of a sudden, like, my doctor called me up and was, like, talking to me about, do I like Bitcoin more than Ethereum? But how do I, you know, get involved, you know, in this current marketplace? And I want to hold my own keys so I don't have exchange risk. And so they're coming back now, no doubt about that. And it's always when my phone's ringing with those kind of people that, you know, you realize you're in a different cycle. And, and I suffered the same thing. I mean, my first exposure to Bitcoin, I bought it at 100. It went to 1,000 over the course of a year. I and mean, then it went to 80. And my reaction was, well, that was fun, but it's over. Right, it's over. And then you learn. So cycle number four or five, you know, you kind of figure it out. And it might not be an investment you want to hold all the time, but when it's good, it's better than anything, and and I think people, you know, are, are now uh, dusting themselves off from you know the twenty twenty one debacle and, and getting back involved. Now, you know, what they should have done is read my LinkedIn post from you know right after Sam was arrested, where I was like, "This is the wrong price." Yeah, so another guy that sort of blew up the world, and um, and, and 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 you know, it's like seven out as they say on the craps table. Um, but you know this 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 is coming back, and I, I just think this is going to be a feature of crypto forever. and 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 maybe one day we'll we'll reach a point where nobody is a naysayer, nobody thinks it's worthless, nobody says it's backed by nothing and therefore it's useless, and it's you know just a hotbed of criminal activity. Once you do not hear that anymore, we may well have reached the terminal price, but those voices are still pretty loud. and um, and that what may, that's what makes me you know uh, optimistic for the for the future.
0: Now, my last question is, uh, if we had talked five years ago, maybe, definitely, you know, further back than that, and somebody said to me, hey, you know, who is Danny? Most of the description of your career would have been in the traditional financial world, if not all of it. When your career is done, when you decide, hey, I've had enough, are you going to be known as a crypto investor or as a traditional markets investor? And do you see pros or cons of either one of those?
1: well i'm gonna i'm gonna reveal something to you tonight, Pomp, and we'll see what you want to do with it but um so in July of this year, I turned sixty and um i'm I feel like I'm very you know young in body and young in mind, but the math is the math, okay <laughs> and I went on a i went on a uh, i want to say it's like when you renovate your house um I went to a clinic for two weeks, and I had every Test known to man and every therapy known to man. I had a nagging shoulder injury for a long time. You know, I had um, all kinds of stuff done. I may or may not have had uh, a little bit of uh, face work done. We, we, we don't need to uh, publish that too much, but I just wanted to I wanted to sort of go, okay, we're going we, this has been the family house we've been living in, and, and we want to live in it for a little bit longer, so uh, so that's what we're going to do. And one of the things on my list was something that um i promised uh, jean-marie our ceo and my good friend um we made some promises to each other back in 2014 and one of them was if bitcoin ever got to a thousand dollars i would have a bitcoin tattoo and um and many years later um so that must have been uh, you know nine years later uh, i delivered on the promise and part of part of the Part of the thought process, because I'm not a tattoo guy, as you can imagine, but part of the thought process was I wanted a kind of a memorial to Bitcoin and what it's done for me, And but that wasn't enough. You know, when I thought it through, I thought that wasn't really enough. And, and what, I, what I thought was, you know, this is something I want to do for what Bitcoin is going to do for me and for the world going forward. And that was a really conscious choice, okay? Um, I'll show it to you if you want.
0: No way. (laughs) That is amazing. How long have you had that? I had it July 4th. Wow.
1: And I'm telling you something. I had to think long and hard whether the Bitcoin market would rally because I didn't want to fall into the same trap as Nova. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, Novo and you are going to compare notes in uh, in five <laughs> or six years to see who made the better yeah. tattoo choice.
1: I think here's a long way to catch up, but uh anyway, so so to answer your question, and that is the answer to the question, I think Bitcoin's a magical thing. I will I will never cease being fascinated with it. You know, I I, I, I kid you not when I say, obviously, you know, I have a lot of my net worth tied up in the company, I have a lot of network tied in, you know, some illiquid investments. Hundred percent, well, ninety-five percent to do with crypto, um, and I can never get it right. I can never like get liquidity at a good price in my stock to get me cash to buy Bitcoin because by the time Bitcoin's up, you know it's it's a chicken and egg. But if, if at any point in time, you know, I I do get meaningful liquidity for my rather large position in coin shares um i am seriously thinking about just becoming. you know i'm doing you know the, the ultimate thing you know we know it's a store of value we know it's a medium of exchange but is it a unit of account i want to make it a unit of account i want to and i know there are some people that already do that more the more the maxis than, than the normal guys but i actually want to do that because i really do believe in it and um and that's as much as believing in bitcoin as disbelieving fear but um
0: but I, I plan to do that ultimately That's a fantastic answer. I did not expect that. So that may be one of the best answers we've ever had. (laughs) Uh, Danny, where can we send people to find you on the internet or learn more about CoinShares if if they're intrigued by what you guys are building and want to learn more?
1: Sure. Well, uh, you know, uh, dm at coinshares.com or Danny L Masters, all letters uh, on
0: uh, Twitter. Awesome. Well, Danny, thank you so much for doing this. You are a, uh, an investing legend, and I think uh, you've been a pioneer in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies for a long time. So people are very excited to hear your thoughts on where we are in the market, and we'll definitely do this again in the future.
1: Awesome, my friend. Keep well. I look forward to seeing you in the next time. Hopefully, hopefully you have this discussion uh, at a big high price.